Do you want to know a secret? We're working on a special project that's going to be revealed in the next few weeks. If you'd like to get an inside look and see some exclusive content, go to itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page to our Patreon campaign. If you donate to our campaign, you will be able to access some exclusive content, some behind the scenes, planning documents, some photos, maybe some exclusive audio about this big event that we will be revealing in June. Again, go to itsalljournalism.com, follow the link at the top of the page, and donate to our Patreon campaign. Okay, I think it's worth trying this in an experimental form just to create sort of proof of concept. Let's just see if this is something that is needed, that people respond to, and that actually serves a purpose that other people other than me and Sally are interested in. So that's, that's how JTrust got started. If you see a need, don't wait for others to address it. DIY, do it yourself, start a podcast, launch a project. I'm Michael O'Connell, and you're listening to It's All Journalism. Joining me today on the phone is Sarah Catania, Los Angeles-based journalist and chief storyteller at Ground Source. She's also the founder of JTrust, a pop-up newsletter about trust in journalism. Welcome to the podcast, Sarah. Thank you, Michael. So I became kind of aware of you. Somehow I ended up receiving the JTrust newsletter, and uh, recently you, you kind of wrapped that up, and, and I thought it was kind of a, a fascinating sort of experience. But before we get into that, you know, when I <laughs> doing a little research about, about you, I found that you've had kind of a, maybe this is a more typical career, I guess, with, with digital journalism. You, you did a lot of different things. Can you sort of tell me about how you got into journalism and, and sort of your path to where you're at now? Sure. At the most basic level, I got into journalism, I would say, probably for three reasons. Curiosity about the world, uh, a short attention span, and the desire to be a force for positive change. I'm from Chicago, which is where the quote originated, to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. And uh, I grew up at a time when journalism was pretty robust in Chicago. There was a lot going on, and it really did seem like a way to have a positive, to make a positive impact on the world. So that's where, how I began. And then the second part of your question is, how did I wind up here? <laughs> yeah. where, where have I been and what have I done? Yeah. Well, I started, yeah, I started on a pretty traditional path. I went to graduate school for journalism. I worked in legacy print news organizations, which weren't called legacy print news organizations then because they, they were the news organizations um, at that time, you know, the LA Times and, and other places. And then when things started getting crazy and weird, it was a big moment of disruption, which is what we call it now. And, you know, sort of the terminology we now have for these things, the moment of disruption and the time to pivot. So that was my pivot moment where I started exploring other ways to do journalism and really questioning the best means to be a journalist. Um, and I was fortunate around that time to have a fellowship at Stanford, John S. Knight Journalism Fellowship. So while I, the focus of my fellowship was not on this pivot, the timing was such that it gave me the opportunity to really explore. And also being in Silicon Valley was also very helpful because it exposed me to all of these opportunities to think about different ways to 
be a part of the news media and communicate with audiences. So that was sort of the beginning of this change in my path where I became much more focused on the different forms of digital journalism, which led me to AOL Patch and to leading a digital team at NBC, and then now into a more experimental phase where I've been working with like you mentioned at the beginning, um, testing pop-up newsletters and, and my current role with GroundSource. So l- let me let me back you up a little bit. I, I'm always fascinated when somebody mentions that they, they were at Patch because that was kind of an interesting experiment. Maybe you guys didn't think it was an experiment when it was going on, but it was, you know, this idea of, of doing hyper-local journalism. And I knew, you know, I had the opportunity to sort of cross paths with some Patch people in Northern Virginia and... You know, I was kind of impressed by it wasn't a lot of consistency from neighborhood to neighborhood, but but some of the reporters I was really kind of impressed with, with the way they were covering the community in a digital way. What was your experience at Patch? I think what you've described is very accurate, sort of the, the experimental nature of it, the unevenness of it, and also the wonderfulness of it in pieces and parts. So I think the concept was good and is still good and is, is something that's kind of manifesting itself in different ways now, which is finding people in communities to cover those communities. And not, not community in this giant sense of like the community of journalists or the community of people with um, a certain kind of car, but actually literally geographic small areas, right? So people who live in that area would be the ones um, chronicling what was happening in that area, even if they weren't necessarily formally trained journalists, so that Patch would help them understand how to do that and then give them a platform to cover that community. And that's now described as something really exciting. It's happening in different places around the United States and around the world. At that time, it was just strange, and people didn't quite know what to make of it. Um, the problem ultimately was that there was no business model to support it, and this is something that we all know is an ongoing challenge for journalism. But what uh, Patch was trying to do was use scale as a way to attract advertising dollars and, and create a sustainable model. But they could never quite figure out how to do that. Yeah. From, from a journalism standpoint, it was really, you know, it was hit and miss. You know, it, de- it really kind of depended on, on what the community was and who the reporter was. But when they when you know things lined up, it, it was actually kind of exciting to see, you know, somebody out there on the street every day in the neighborhoods, uh, you know, going to the meetings, taking you know taking pictures of the the construction going on in the you know in the in the the new shopping center or in the in the um, the new tra- new traffic light going on. You know, very basic stuff, great community journalism. But you know that's the challenge of of that strata of journalism. I mean, they've been struggling for years, as everybody in journalism has been struggling, but try, try to find the formula that works to make um, to make community news uh, viable. Um, and it, it's been tough. Yes, that's absolutely true. And, that, <laughs> and as, as, the, as that project demonstrated, as that experiment demonstrated, because, it, you know, it didn't work. Yeah. Um, and yes, it's an ongoing, it's a huge ongoing challenge. Absolutely. So now you we let's let's circle back to J Trust because I'm really kind of fascinated by this. You you call it an experiment. You know how did this come about? Well, I guess we should also sort of describe what it was. How often did the newsletter come out, and you know what was what was it you were setting out to do? Well, it was a one woman show, so it's just me and my newsletter. 
um, as, as these things often are. And it started with a question. So I started thinking about it around the time, you know, we have these, we're all very fascinated as journalists with ourselves and what we're doing. And, and you know, for good reason now, because we are sort of in this moment of crisis and there's been a lot more attention to journalism itself. What can we do? How can we do better? And there was this moment when the big question of the moment was trust. And, you know, we know now it's kind of part of the conversation. It's part of one of the things that we're looking at. But there was a moment when it sort of came to a head. It seemed, and I was very interested in it, and I was sort of following all the different things that were going on, and it seemed like there were lots of different things going on, but no sort of central repository or place where people could really get a quick handle on, okay, what's going on this week in this conversation? What are people talking about? What do I need to know? So I reached out to a friend of mine, Sally Lerman, who runs the Trust Project, which is one of the original places where they started thinking about this question years ago. And I said, is this something that would be useful? Is it, is it, does it exist? Am I missing it? And she said, no, it doesn't exist. It would be incredibly useful. And it would be great if someone would do it. There aren't any resources for it right now, but it would be great if someone would do it. And I just thought, well, okay, I think it's worth trying this in an experimental form just to create sort of proof of concept. Let's just see if this is something that is needed, that people respond to, and that actually serves a purpose that other people other than me and Sally are interested in. So that's, that's how JTrust got started. And the, the idea was to share resources, ex- explore the topic, sort of connect people through a newsletter? Yes, and also to sort of figure out what would be most useful. So it was important to me to have it be sort of a working newsletter lab in a way, to send it to people and say, okay, here are some resources. Is this a good, is this a good way to use this? you know, to sort of give you an overview of what the conversation is this week, what's most useful. So I got feedback from different people who are focused on this thing. Yes, that's useful. You know, maybe you could also give some case studies or so it sort of morphed over time into different things in different ways based on feedback I got and also from things that I was seeing and doing through the course of working on the newsletter that I thought might be useful or interesting to share around the question. If I saw gaps or if I saw something that hadn't been covered yet. I would sort of pop it in there. So I wouldn't say that it had a very strictly defined structure and format from start to end. It was kind of a working lab experiment throughout its run. Okay. And the audience, was the audience, was it journalists sharing information or are you, are you trying to get reach a larger audience to sort of bring this discussion to them? My goal was very modest, which really was to reach journalists working on this or journalists who wanted to do better. Anyone could subscribe. So if, you know, anyone who was interested, but honestly, most people in the world, although they may have an opinion about journalism, aren't that interested, aren't (laughs) interested enough to read a newsletter about it. I mean, much as we'd like to think they are, it's not really high on their priority list. Yeah. Imagine trying to do a podcast or uh, talking about journalism and trying to get people interested. Yeah, I know. I, I know all about that. Yeah. yeah, welcome no, to my yeah. world. But never my ex, never my expectation that I was going to be like you know top ten uh, newsletter in the world or anything. No, yeah. no, no, no. But it's you know it's a noble effort and and it's you know it's important you know to put these resources out there, especially for people who are trying to who maybe be struggling and trying to find answers. That if there's somebody else who's involved in the conversation and they go, oh yeah, well what worked for you. You know, and this worked for me in creating sort of a dialogue and and a resource for people to to pull in information. So, how long did the experiment run? It was about six months. 
you know, and I had, you know, it was just me doing it. And I didn't want to put a newsletter out if I wasn't complete. I didn't have all my ducks in a row. So there was, you know, little gaps here and there. But I would say start to, to end, it was about a six-month run um, in the second half of 2017. Okay. And then I did a, as you, as you noted, I did sort of a wrap-up. Yeah. Kind of, you know, sharing my findings and sort of making some suggestions. Sort of, so I, I, I wanted to have some kind of closure. Like, okay, I did this. This is what I found. And this is what I think, you know, should come next. And that helps because otherwise, you know, you know, two years down the road, you remember that newsletter was out. What was it? (laughs) What was that about? And what did they, you know, if you've got closure and it makes it seem like the, oh, this was all planned out. This was all came to some end and, and accomplished something. So, well, first of all, let me ask, is this something that that's archived somewhere that people can, you know, access and, and see these resources? Yeah, well, I I picked a few, um, you know, because the nature of it was primarily about things that were happening in the moment, um, I decided I would pick a few that had a longer shelf life Mm -hmm. and make those available sort of permanently. So I put my final newsletter, I sent out as a newsletter and also published it on Medium. So you can find it there. And then also there are two additional additions that were republished by the local news lab, which is a project of the Democracy Fund. Mm -hmm. So those are also available, you know, in a more permanent way. The rest of them, I think, you know, were primarily hinged to a specific place and time. And I don't think they have as much value in the world, you know, in an ongoing way. So, you know, here you are, you know, after six months of doing this, you know, what is your takeaway? What, you know, what did you learn over that process? What what were your thoughts at the beginning and how did they kind of change at the end or did they change? Yeah. So a, c- a couple things. One is, as I mentioned earlier in this conversation, you know, journalism is now in this position where we're being much more reflective. We're looking at ourselves. We're examining our own practices and trying to do better. But journalists, by nature, are not collaborative. We are, <laughs> we, are in, we are independent. We work on our own. We're lone we wolves. Really, <laughs> yes, we're, we're not, we don't have a lot of experience, practice, or the temperament to work together. So, and that includes when we're thinking about ourselves and what we do. It's very uncomfortable and very unnatural <laughs> for journalists to do that. So one thing I discovered, which I think is a big issue, is there are so many different things going on to address this question, all, you know, admirable and all working on important pieces and parts, but mostly independently and separately, which seems absurd to me because we're at a time when, you know, although we're sort of in a moment where there are, there's lots of will and the economy is good, so there are resources available to sort of check in on this question. These are sort of finite little pools of you know, revenue or grants from foundations to examine the question. At a certain point, things are going to sort of narrow down. And it's really important to for people to come together and work together, pool resources, eliminate redundancies, and find ways to tackle these questions in a much more collaborative way. It will benefit the industry. It will benefit the public at large to do that. But getting journalists to really embrace that is not an easy thing. And that is one thing that became very clear to me as I worked on this. I think you kind of referenced the fact that this is like an ongoing question. But, you know, this sort of sense that, you know, oh, everybody's talking about trust all of a sudden. But this is something that's been going on for a long time. 
And it's just maybe now it's getting a, because we're dealing with things like fake news and, you know, the people trying to, to find credible news sources to determine what is a credible news source, that this kind of moved into the more of a central discussion. You know, what are your thoughts on that? The fact that this has sort of popped up as the news to talk about or the, the topic du jour, though I don't think it is. I mean, I think that you're absolutely right. There's nothing new about the question of trust in journalism. And I think it's very closely linked to some larger shifts, some larger, very important positive shifts we're seeing where communities, different, all different kinds of communities are saying, hey, well, what about us? You know, uh, journalism isn't this one monolithic thing. I mean, a great example of that is the New York Times obituary project, right? So throughout the 20th century, lots and lots of women, people of color, lesbian, gay people, LGBTQ people didn't get obituaries, didn't merit obituaries in the New York Times, which <laughs> wow. they're now remedying. They're now remedying this. There's a giant project underway, which was initiated by a woman of color who had been assigned to the obituary desk. And she started wondering, well, why isn't there an obituary of this person and this person and this person? So I think that that growing awareness of the narrowness of the range and scope of what was considered journalism and who merited coverage, the fact that that has changed has contributed to this sense of mistrust and brought it to the fore in a way that it hadn't been before, even though you're absolutely right, it's been a question for quite a while. And there are nuances to to the question of trust. You know, when we talk about representation of, of different ethnicities and, and, and gender, you know, people who aren't involved, who, who just aren't and haven't been sort of involved in the, the conversation. And, and so now, as people become more aware and, and more thinking that way, they, you know, well, how can I trust this organization that for the last, you know, 50 years has ignored this sector of the of society that, you know, is everything that they everything that they've reported me, you know, even though they're a trusted news source in quotes, you know, it's somehow skewed because that was their, their perspective that they didn't. They weren't maybe presenting a real view of what the world was. And now we're kind of in a different place, I guess. Yeah. Yes, so, absolutely. So, would you deem this, this experiment a success or a learning experience or maybe a step going forward? Yes, I would say it's a step. I mean, it succeeded in, well, it, you know, on a... <laughs> On the most selfish personal level, I've, you know, I learned how to do a newsletter. So as a, a journalist and a lifelong lear learner who is constantly trying to see and understand the different ways that journalism can be communicated and people doing journalism can communicate with different segments of their audience, I very much embrace the opportunity to try different ways to do that. And so I thought, this is an important thing that needs to be done. I think the way to do it is through a newsletter. I haven't done a newsletter. Oh, that's a good idea. I'll do a newsletter. <laughs> I can learn how to do a newsletter. So on the on a sort of personal professional growth level, it was great because I learned how to do a newsletter. I you know, got into MailChimp and I created this thing and I figured out about segmenting and this wonderful woman named Jackie Boutique, who's a newsletter expert. Um, at the Shorenstein Center at Harvard, helped me sort of think it through and strategize. So I now have this other little pocket of knowledge and expertise that I can then use in other ways. As an actual project that 
provided something to the world of journalism. I think it was useful in that it showed an interest in this, and it definitely revealed to me how scattered all of these efforts are and reinforced what I thought to be true at the beginning, which is there are all these different things going on and they're not, there's no coordination and, and perhaps, you know, very limited awareness from one effort to another about all the different things going on around the U.S. and honestly around the world, in different parts of the world, different efforts underway to tackle this question. So I think it basically reinforced what I had thought at the beginning and maybe brought some attention to it in a way that might create an opportunity somewhere at one of these organizations to find a way to do something like this in a more long-term way. It's a commitment. You know, you have to have resources. You have to, <laughs> you have to be willing to invest in it. And then you also have to have the underlying buy-in that it's a good idea to collaborate and the will to try to be a part of that larger effort to make that happen. Yeah, no, I think, I think it was definitely a worthy effort. And personally, I don't think there's anything wrong to start something out to you know, gain new skills, to better your career and, you know, just grow as a, um, as a professional. I don't see anything in problem with that, but, it, but the fact that you also recognize that this is an important story, you know, nobody else is sort of gathering this in a, in a newsletter. This would be useful to other people. Why don't I do this? Yeah. I'm going to learn these skills, but it's also an opportunity for me to learn more about this subject, but also maybe, you know, to do something positive, create something for, for the world as opposed to just saying, you know, yeah, somebody should do something about that. Yes, that's true. And then as a result of that, the American Press Institute has put together this project called Better News. They're trying to provide resources for newsrooms trying to do a better job. And as a result of me doing this newsletter, I did become sort of an expert on the question of trust in journalism. You know, this was this repository, so I had a good sense of all of the different things going on, the studies and the and all of the different efforts underway. And so they asked me then to create a vertical, to curate a vertical for this resource about trust in journalism. So that was great. To your point that, you know, it created, I sort of became in the moment, an expert on this and created an opportunity to, to work on something with one of these groups that would provide a piece of their larger, this toolbox they were creating for journalists. So that, that felt good, too, because I think, you know, it was Tim Griggs who was running that project for them. And he was really excited to have someone who knew all this stuff <laughs> to put this together for them. So I felt good about that. That was, it felt like a nice service to journalism to be able to provide that. Yeah, no, you, you created an opportunity for yourself by turning yourself into an expert about, about a subject, but also um, doing a newsletter to help you to do other things. You're also the chief storyteller at Ground Source. So what does that entail? So this is a really natural and lovely outgrowth of my work on trust in journalism, because one of the things that was sort of a recurring theme in a lot of the work that's being done on trust in journalism is the lack of representation in communities and communities feeling that their voice is not being heard. And so Ground Source is a platform and a service that helps news organizations build direct two-way conversations with audiences and communities. And the focus is on people who want to step forward, who have stories to tell, but haven't felt 
a path to do that, haven't seen a way to make that happen. So it's based, it's a texting based, and it it's a way to engage directly with communities that otherwise haven't been reached and to expand and deepen conversations with those communities. So how would a, a journalist or a newsroom sort of initiate a conversation like this using ground source? Sure. Well, there are lots of different ways. Some news organizations like Southern California Public Radio initiate the conversation through events. They do lots of live events. And so you have a giant auditorium full of people. People can provide a number on a screen. People can text in and text in their questions instead of going to a mic or you know, using another, you know, standing in the aisle or using index cards. And then at the end of the event, they have the option to continue and participating in the conversation or end it. So if they just wanted it to be at the event and they don't want to have any more conversation, they can say stop and that's the end of it. But if they want to continue, then they, they continue on in this ongoing conversation about whatever the question is that the event was, was relating to. It's housing or transportation or whatever the issue is at hand. That makes a lot of sense because, you know, for example, we're talking about a live event of, you know, if the people go to like a, you know, a meeting, a community meeting or something, they're there for a reason, they're there that they're interested. And so being able to establish that, you know, link with them and then later on as, as more information becomes available, you've, you've got basically ostensibly a, a mailing list that you can reach out to and say, hey, this is, this is the, the update on that meeting that you went to. Here's what we were able to decide later on to continue this conversation and solicit input after the fact. That's, that's right. That's kind of neat. Yeah, it's really cool. Another example, so different news organizations use it in very different ways. Another example that's really interesting is in Detroit, a very small news outlet called Outlier Media is focused on the housing crisis in Detroit. So, you know, Detroit is, is in distress in many ways, and one of those ways is with housing. Many, many, many homes and other properties are in arrears, they're not being maintained. And so this news outlet, it's really interesting. The woman who runs it created a very clean data set about almost every property in Detroit from multiple sources. So she used FOIA and, you know, publicly available property records to get lots and lots of information about landlords, about different you know, just the status of different properties, you know, mm -hmm. taxes are owed, whether the landlord is within their rights in terms of how much they're raising the rent. So then what she does is she actually buys phone number lists and cold text people in Detroit in certain geographic areas where the housing market is especially distressed and says, hello, you know, I'm with Outlier Media. I'm working on uh, housing issues in Detroit. If you'd like to know the status of the property where you live, you know, text me back your address and I'll send you the information. So she has it all set up so that anyone can send in their address and then find out the status of their property. Hmm. And she uses this to start conversations about what's happening and abuses that people are suffering. So one of her recent stories that emerged from that was a woman who owed less than $1,000 on her mortgage but was going to have her property taken away from her because she had fallen through the cracks of some system. But she wasn't a person who would otherwise have contacted the news media, and her story would have gone untold. And so through this, she received a text that said, you know, 
Do you want to know, you know, what's happening with your property? And she saw that text and then responded to responded to it and said, well, I'm about to lose my house. So I, I know what's going on with my property. Oh, wow. And as the story emerged from there. That's, that's great. Well, it, it fits in with the name ground source that, you know, it's yeah. a way for you to source stories, to find out stories that you may never have heard of because people don't know how to communicate with the, the, the press or may not even think about it. But, you know, here's, here's a, a tool that you can use to sort of reach out and find these, these stories that they're going completely unnoticed. That's, that's great. It's great for a lot of different reasons. One, just bringing in more people and more diverse people into the conversation, but then also just sort of establishing this dialogue between uh, your audience and, and your newsroom. That's, that's really powerful. So before, before we move on, one sure. other thing I want to point out about that that I think is very interesting and something for journalists to think about is it is a two-way relationship. So the way this works with this Detroit News Outlet Outlier is they offer you something to start. Would you like to access to this information that can benefit you? Mm-hmm. If the person says yes, they receive the information, then in return they may want to share a story that they have. So instead of it being, hello, I'm a journalist, I'm going to take something from you, right. and then I'm going to put it into a story that, that you will then you know, <laughs> receive. It really turns the relationship around. So it's, uh, you know, the relationship is, what can I do that would be meaningful and valuable to you? And in return, maybe you would share something with me instead of just the assumption. Well, of course you're going to share it with me. I'm a journalist. I'm entitled to know this information. <laughs> so it's, I think it's a really important model to look at and explore and see where it goes. And it gets away from the old model of uh, the, the journalist being the broadcaster. We're just going to take this information in it being a one way street. We're just going to tell you what the story is. And it makes more, makes it more, of a dialogue between the the audience and the newsroom, which is exactly. what digital journalism is about. This type of storytelling is about is, you know, taking advantage of the technology to sort of break down these barriers and tell more personal stories, which in a roundabout way addresses the concern of your newsletter, which is you know, how do we garner more trust? Well, one of the ways to do it is communicate, listen with your audience. That would be my guess. Yeah. <laughs> Sarah, this has been great. Thanks for coming on the podcast. So um, how can people find out more about GroundSource? So you just Google GroundSource. The website describes it, shows how it works, and there are lots of case studies, and you can look at that and see how it works in different newsrooms and different environments. I also would like to say that if you are with a news organization and you're intrigued by this, you should consider applying for a subsidy from the Community Listening and Engagement Fund. The next deadline is September 1st. It's called the Community Listening and Engagement Fund Class. You can also Google that. And it provides a subsidy to newsrooms that are interested in trying ground source but maybe don't have the resources to cover the full cost. And so it's a great opportunity to try it out and see if this is something that might work in your newsroom. Cool. Thanks for sharing that. Sarah, thanks for coming on the podcast. This has been great. Thank you, Michael. It was fun. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the changing state of digital news. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. You can also find us on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Podcast One. Would you like to find out more about our podcast? Why not sign up for our email newsletter that comes out every week? Go to itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page to sign up. Do you want to know a secret? 
It's All Journalism is working on a special project, which we will be revealing in the coming weeks. If you'd like to get some behind-the-scenes information, some exclusive content, then go to itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page to our Patreon campaign. The only way you'll be able to access this exclusive content is to sign up and support our podcast through our Patreon campaign. It takes a lot of people to put together an episode of It's All Journalism, and here they are. Nicole Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. Nicholas Hunter provided web support and research. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening. The Finish the Game podcast with your host, Sean Alexander. Draw play to Sean across the 10, the 5, touchdown Seahawks. Hey, this is Sean Alexander, NFL MVP. Check out my podcast, Finish the Game, where I discuss sports and life lessons helping you become an MVP. The Finish the Game podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast DC. The What's Working in Washington podcast with your host, Jonathan Aberman. We share this region's innovative, entrepreneurial, and creative spirit. This podcast tells impressive stories of passion and spunk taking place here in the D.C. region. It illustrates how the nation's capital is anything but the stuffy, bureaucratic, politics-only reputation it tries to shed. The What's Working in Washington podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast DC.